0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today's episode covers our first female surgeon and a Canadian one at that. Dr. Teasdale had a most unusual career, one based on selflessness and self-sacrifice. Her story is a tragic one, but inspirational too, as we'll see on this episode of Legends of Surgery. Lucille Teasdale was born January 30, 1929, the fourth of seven children, five girls and two boys, in the East End working class neighborhood of Guyberg in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Her father was a butcher who owned and ran a grocery store. He was very supportive of her academic development, so at age 12, she was sent to a strict convent high school in Montreal, and it was here that Lucille heard some missionary nuns speak at her school about their work in a Chinese orphanage, which inspired her to become a doctor. Teasdale won a scholarship to attend medical school at the Université de Montréal, the French-speaking school in Montreal, in 1950. Now, some of you may be familiar with the English school, McGill, but if not, we'll be returning there in future episodes to meet some other famous Canadian surgeons. Lucille was one of only eight women in her class of 110, and graduated cum laude, meaning with distinction, or literally with praise from the Latin. She chose surgery as her specialty, the only woman in her class to do so. This was an unusual pursuit for women at the time as Dr. Teasdale herself explains, quote, everyone tried to discourage me from choosing surgery. They told me it was clearly a man's world and that no mother would ever put her child's life in the hands of a woman surgeon. But she was determined and began her training at the Centre Hôpitalier Universaire Saint-Justine, a pediatric and obstetric university health center affiliated with the university. During her internship, She met an Italian doctor, Piero Corti, who was completing his training in pediatrics. He already had two previous postgraduate specializations in radiology and neuropsychiatry. He was interested in Teasdale, but has said himself that she, quote, was always much too busy for anything else but work, end quote. As part of her training, she was required to do a year abroad. Despite applying to 20 U.S. schools, Teasdale couldn't get a position, which she said was, quote, probably because I was a woman, end quote. However, she did get a position to train in pediatric surgery in Marseille, France, at the Hôpital de la Conception, as well as an offer from Paris, and left Montreal in September of 1960 at the age of 31. The plan was to complete eight months of training there before completing her training in Paris, but one day Pierrot was at her doorstep, asking her to join him in Uganda, where he had visited and wanted to return to build a world class hospital. Pierre needed a surgeon and invited Lucille to join him for two to three months, promising to pay for her flight and provide money for cigarettes and toothpaste, which seems like a strange list of essentials to me. This was Teasdale's opportunity to live out her childhood dream, so she was willing to suspend her training. On May 2nd, 1961, they boarded a UN military plane in Milan for Kampala, the capital of Uganda, then made the 300 kilometer drive north to the small town of Gulu, and then the final 10 kilometers into the countryside to St. Mary's Hospital. At that time, it was one small building with 40 beds, run by four Italian nuns, a nurse and a midwife, and had the barest of facilities, which did not include a proper operating theater. In Teasdale's words, quote, for a population of 40,000, I am practically the only surgeon able to do certain operations. Fortunately, I brought all my surgery textbooks. It is very stressful, but at the same time, it is fascinating because I have the possibility of doing so much for these people, end quote. On her first day, a patient came in requiring an emergency cesarean section. As there was no OR, They had to lay her on a table in the maternity ward. Teasdale had never performed the operation, but had seen them in medical school and had read about them. So she ran back to her room, reviewed her surgery books, and, with Piero giving the anesthesia, successfully performed her first C-section, saving the mom and her baby boy. (coughs) Teasdale quickly fell into a routine at the hospital, spending the mornings in the outpatient clinic, seeing patients with all manner of illnesses, including malaria, pneumonia and malnourishment, and those needing vaccinations. The afternoons were spent doing a non-stop succession of operations, like C-sections, treating ruptured appendices, and removing tumors, as well as treating wounds inflicted by lions and elephants, all in a makeshift operating theater, which was little more than a table with a single flickering light bulb. There were so few instruments that they often had to be re-sterilized during an operation, and as if things weren't difficult enough, Tizel had to work in four different languages, including English, French, Italian, and Echoli, the local dialect. After four months... Twice as long as originally planned, Teasdale returned to Marseille to complete her training. But after a proposal from Piero, she left early to return to Uganda to marry him at the chapel on the hospital grounds. They left for a honeymoon in Tanzania, but not before Teasdale rounded on her patients with a white lab coat over her wedding dress. Now that's dedication. Upon her return, Teasdale got back to her routine. And despite the makeshift OR with sporadic electricity, an inconsistent supply of clean water, rudimentary equipment and a chronic lack of drugs... She quickly became a skilled and seasoned general surgeon in the broadest sense of the term. And she became known for her high standards of cleanliness and demands that orders be followed meticulously. In the OR she demanded absolute silence from the nurses who were not permitted to disturb her while she worked. Things were going well, with Piero working hard to raise funds and equipment for the hospital. The mood in the country was bright as Uganda gained independence from Britain on October 9, 1962. The hospital was renamed the Lachore Hospital and started to attract Italian doctors for three-month placements as interns, as well as surgical trainees from Macarrera University in Kampala. And by the way, in 1982, they actually became recognized as a teaching hospital by the government. And, as if things weren't good enough, on November 17th of 1962, Lucille and Piero had a daughter who they named Dominique. The locals called her Atim, which means born in a foreign land, so Lucille became known as Minatim, or mother of Atim, she gave birth on a Saturday night, spent Sunday recovering, and was back to work on Monday. Their life at Lachore Hospital continued, with further developments of the hospital, including developing a nursing school, which opened in 1973, as well as training health educators, midwives, lab technicians, and radiographers. Dominique grew up in the compound and went to the local school as her first language was acholi, taught her by her nanny, but she spoke four languages fluently. Unfortunately, their little paradise was about to be disrupted. Uganda's Prime Minister Milton Oboti, was from a tribe in the north, and the president was from a tribe in the south. Obote tried to oust the president, but failed. And the south part of Uganda turned on him, so Obote turned to one of his senior military commanders, the infamous Idi Amin, making him commander of the army. When the prime minister was out of the country, Amin seized power. On January 25, 1971, Amin led a military coup, which began an eight-year reign of terror in Uganda, declaring himself president for life. The movie The Last King of Scotland is actually about him. The Lechore Hospital was caught in the crossfire between rival tribes and Teasdale was forced to become a war surgeon overnight. The vast majority of the wounds that she saw were gunshot wounds from so-called soft bullets, which would pierce the skin and then explode inside the body, creating razor-sharp bone fragments within the wound. Teasdale would reach in and pull out the shards, frequently cutting herself in the process, and often needing to change gloves four or five times per operation. It is said that she treated over a thousand gunshot wounds. Her husband worried about the contact with patient's blood through damaged gloves, But her answer was that surgeons are always taking risks, that is part of her profession. Those words would come back to haunt her, as we'll see. Teasdale worked at a feverish pace, even setting up two operating tables at a time, finishing one case and leaving post-op to her interns, and then changing gloves to pivot to the next table. But the dangers outside of the operating room were very real, and under duress, Lucille and Piero decided to send their daughter Dominique to Italy to live with her aunt. Eventually, due to homesickness, they came to the compromise of a boarding school in neighboring Kenya, on April 11, 1979, Amin was overthrown, but the country fell into civil war. The hospital was repeatedly robbed, and staff were leaving in droves, while Lucille continued to treat wounded soldiers from all over the country, as Lachore was the only hospital left open in the entire country. But by the early 1980s, things began to settle down. The hospital returned to full staffing, and even opened a new tuberculosis ward, radiology department, and a pair of new operating theaters, and even a cancer center offering radiation treatments and chemotherapy. It was around this time that a particular event occurred that serves as a revealing anecdote of the kind of practice Teasdale had. A four-year-old boy arrived with hydrocephalus, which is basically too much fluid around the brain, and needed a special valve inserted to relieve it and to prevent irreversible brain damage. A valve was procured from Europe and sent to Lachore with written instructions on how to insert it from a neurosurgeon. Teasdale had never done this operation before, but she propped up the instructions in front of her in the OR and proceeded. Four hours later, the valve had been successfully inserted, saving the child, not your typical surgical practice. So around this time, patients started showing up at the clinic with a constellation of symptoms including weight loss, fever, cough, and chronic diarrhea, which antibiotics did nothing to improve. The earliest reports of this new unknown illness in Uganda was in 1982, and the locals began referring to it as slim disease, as patients in the end stages of it looked skeletal. This was eventually recognized to be HIV-AIDS, which would become endemic in Uganda. And just a quick note of explanation for those that don't know. So HIV is the infectious agent called the human immunodeficiency virus. Once certain clinical conditions occur, the patient is said to have AIDS, which stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. So Teasdale continued her frantic operating pace, but by 1985 started to notice a decrease in her energy, weight loss, and a persistent cough. She also developed malaria and shingles, which raised her suspicions, which were confirmed by a blood test. Teasdale had been infected with HIV. Looking back, they figured that she must have been infected from cutting her finger during surgery on the wounded soldiers. Her greatest fear was that she wouldn't be able to operate anymore, but on the advice of a colleague in Kampala, Teasdale decided that if a patient's condition wasn't life-threatening or the operation could be done by another surgeon, she wouldn't do it. But if she was the only one capable of doing the surgery and it's life-threatening, she could go ahead, but with the utmost care. An interesting moral dilemma, to be sure. Teasdale continued with her work in the outpatient clinics, and she would again be urgently needed, As in January of 1986, the government would once again be overthrown, and out of the chaos would rise a new and even more terrible group called the Lord's Resistance Army, headed by the almost cult-like leader, Joseph Kony. They would introduce child soldiers to the conflict, and their brutal tactics of landmines and torture shocked Teasdale, despite her now long experience in Uganda's wars. Once again, the hospital would become a safe haven for people, with dozens now sleeping within the compound walls to avoid the rebels. Eventually, the hospital would be cut off from the outside world, although Teasdale was able to get to London, England to see a specialist. Now, upon returning to Uganda, she developed a groin abscess. As all of the other surgeons had fled, it was up to her husband, Piero, to perform surgery, which he'd never done before. With no other choice, he gave her an epidural and opened and drained the abscess successfully. Teasdale was able to return to work, but by now she was 60 and quite sick. The hospital was closed to all but the most dire emergency cases, as there were only two doctors left. But somehow, once again, by the 1990s, Uganda was able to recover and the hospital continued to grow. Teasdale was inducted to the Order of Canada with the following citation, quote, She has devoted herself to the well-being of the people of northern Uganda for close to 30 years. Together with her pediatrician husband, she has survived through war-torn times to build the hospital into a model training center and health care facility serving the vast rural area of Gulu, end quote. The little 40-bed clinic had turned into a full medical complex with 450 beds, with some of the best facilities in the country, serving 150,000 patients a year and employing over 400 medical professionals, all Africans trained at Lachore. Lucille and Piero had realized their dream. In 1996, they established the Lucille Teasdale and Piero Corti Foundation to continue their work. In mid-April of that year, Lucille left Uganda for the last time to go to Italy to be near family. She died August 1, 1996, at the age of 67 and her body was flown back to Uganda to be buried at Lachore Hospital. Now, despite her terrible illness, Dr. Teasdale kept an amazing outlook and demonstrated courage not just as a surgeon, but as a patient as well. One final time, here are her words. Quote, I do know that every single day I am happy to be alive. I am able to enjoy life, to enjoy the love of my husband and my daughter. I do not see why I should live in anguish because I have this disease. When you are a surgeon, it is a risk of the profession. End quote. Now, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery, and I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll get back to one of our series, this time looking at the surgeon behind one of the most commonly used instruments in medicine, the Foley catheter. But before that, I have a little surprise for you, so watch for that soon. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at SurgeryLegends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always...